All right. Welcome back, everybody. Welcome back. It is so awesome to see everyone here this beautiful Thursday morning. This week's Parsha is Parsha's Vayishlach. And what a special Parsha it is. Uh, so many lessons to learn, and I'm really excited. So let's jump right in. Parsha's Vayishlach is the eighth portion in the book of Genesis, the eighth portion since the beginning of the Torah. We have 154 verses, 1,976 words, and 7,485 letters. There is one mitzvah in this week's parsha. It's a prohibition, and it's the prohibition from eating the sciatic nerve, the T-bone, because, as we'll see, Yaakov got into a fight with the angel of Esav, and uh, as a, I don't know, we don't know the reasons for the commandments, but this is one of the commandments that God tells us right after the story, probably as a remembrance for this battle that we are constantly fighting against the angels of Esav, that we don't eat that part of a animal. Okay, so the, the story begins in this week's Parsha, how Yaakov was returning to the Holy Land, and Yaakov sends angels with a message of peace to appease his brother. After stealing the firstborn blessings, but he didn't really steal. I mean, we write stealing, but it's not really stealing. What Yaakov is is doing is he, he realizes his brother's upset about this trade that they had, and he's not sure that Esau's not wanting to kill him still. So even though 20 years have passed, he is still concerned about his brother. The messengers return reporting that Esau is approaching with an army of 400 men, and Yaakov now is afraid because Esau is a lot stronger than him. Esau is a violent guy, and Yaakov is a guy who speaks words. And, you know, that's what how Isaac defined the difference between the two was that the hands are the hands of Esau, but the voice is the voice of Jacob. So Yaakov is worried and does three things. Number one is he prepares gifts for his brother. Number two is he prays. And number three is he tr- strategically prepares for war. Then we have the struggle. That night, Yaakov helps his family and animals cross the Yabok River. Then he stays behind. Yaakov meets the angel of Esau, and they wrestle all night long until dawn. Ad alos hashachar, till the morning rises. They were fighting, they were battling, they were struggling. Yaakov emerges victorious, but is left with an injured sinew in his thigh. And very, very interestingly, our sages teach us that this struggle is a struggle that each one of us face. Each one of us have that same struggle. Yaakov represents Yisrael, the Jewish people. The angel gives Jacob that name of Yisrael after this struggle, because this is not a struggle just of Yaakov. This is a struggle of the entire Jewish people for the entire history. We're going to have this struggle. The angel foretells that he will be named Yisrael, signifying Yaakov's victory, and he blesses him. And then there's the meeting. In the morning, Yaakov and Esau meet, they hug, they kiss, they cry, and they reconcile. Esau thanks Yaakov for his gift and tries rejecting them, but Yaakov insists and Esau keeps it. We'll see soon. Very interesting. If we look at the words, remember we said, we say this every week. There's not an extra word. There's not an extra letter. There's not an extra verse. You'll see that even one word, one letter teaches us so much wisdom, so much wisdom in every single word. Yaakov, still fearful of his brother, rejects Esau's offer that they dwell together in Seir, 
excusing it for the long travel time for the women and children and all the animals. Don't forget, Yaakov amassed a tremendous amount of wealth when he was by his father-in-law, Laban, and he got all these sheep and more sheep and more sheep, and he became extremely, extremely wealthy. And that he'll come at a later date. Yaakov does not end up going to Seir, but rather travels to Sukkos and then to Shechem. And then comes the story of Shechem. Shechem, the prince, abducts and violates Dina, Yaakov's daughter. In an attempt to marry Dina, the prince, and his father suggest a treaty between the parties that the Jews can marry the the uh, Shechemites and the Shechemites can marry the Jews and we'll just be one family and Kumbaya and everything will just be great. Yaakov's sons, Shimon and Levi, trick Shechem and company with a fake agreement and stipulate the agreement to all the males of Shechem undergoing a bris milah, a circumcision. Shimon and Levi execute all the males who were weakened by the circumcision, which is on the third day, you're the weakest after circumcision, and that's when they obliterate, annihilate, and destroy the entire city. They justify this action by the city's tacit complicity in the abduction of their sister. Yaakov is very unhappy with their actions. And we'll see in a few minutes in the important lessons that we need to learn from this week's parsha. we'll see what exactly Yaakov reprimanded them for. And three important people pass away. Number one is Hashem commands Yaakov to go to base El, Bethel, and build an altar. Devorah, Rivka's nurse, dies. It doesn't explicitly tell us in the Torah that Rivka died. And the reason is because our sages tell us it's so beautiful that if it would be announced that Rivka died, if it wasn't done quietly and she was buried at night, then Asav would come. And then people would curse Rivka, look at the son you brought to this world. So quietly they buried Rivka. Again, it wasn't out in the open. And just like it wasn't out in the open then, it isn't out in the open in the Torah. Hashem appears to Yaakov. Hashem blesses him and changes his name to Yisrael. While traveling to Hebron, Rachel gives birth to Binyamin and dies in childbirth. Rachel is buried on Bethlehem Drive, on the way, Derech Bethlehem. And Yaakov builds a monument on Rachel's resting place, which stands till today, Rachel's tomb. We'll see something very special about that incredible place in a minute. Yaakov arrives in Hebron. Yitzchak passes away at 180, at 180 years old, and is buried by his sons. The Torah portion concludes by listing Esau's descendants, and as we see many times, the Torah leaves off the portion with just the final details. Let's just, we got to get it out of the way. And we saw that by Yishmael, with the last, his descendants were also at the end of the Parsha. We have Esav now, his descendants are just at the end of the Parsha. We have to put it in, obviously, but it's not a very strong emphasis. Why? Because the Torah only emphasizes, the Torah only focuses on those that were righteous, those that did the will of Hashem those that represented godliness in this world. Okay, so now let's turn to the important lessons, some of the important lessons that we can hopefully glean and derive from this week's Torah portion. Yaakov wasn't influenced by Lavan. It says, Im Lavan Garti, Garti, I lived with Lavan. The word Garti, Rashi tells us, is the same 
numeric, the same letters as Taryag. Taryag are the 613 commandments. What Yaakov, what Yaakov is demonstrating here is that I lived with a no good neck. I lived with a guy who wasn't good. I lived with Lavan, with Laban. But I didn't learn from his ways. I stayed away from trouble. I stayed away from his bad ways. And it was a, a fantastic uh, demonstration of how even if someone is in a bad environment, if someone has negative influences, if a f- person really works hard and focuses and pays attention to stay away from harm, to stay away from the bad influence, they can succeed just like Jacob did. Now, our sages tell us, and we'll see soon, that Yaakov didn't live with Esav. Why? Because he says, I, I don't know. Now, there's a difference between what Yaakov did. Yaakov was alone. He was a single individual versus with his children. Your children are much easier influenced, and therefore we must protect our children. We must protect our children from influences. And if we think that our children won't be influenced by ne- by a negative environment, we're terribly mistaken. So if our children are in a school, if they're in a neighborhood that has a negative environment, it's our job as parents to get them out of there. Okay, the next lesson is that Yaakov prepares to meet Esau. He has a war plan, prayer, and gifts. Our sages tell us the most powerful of all of those preparations was prayer. Prayer has the ability to remove all threat, to remove all harm, to remove everything. Prayer is so powerful, it transforms the reality in front of us. It says... Even if a very sharp blade, a sword, is right on your throat to kill you. Don't consider yourself distant from mercy. Pray. Utilize the opportunity to pray. We see the fight with the angel till the dawn, this is the eternal struggle till the end of time. It's the dawn, it's in the night, meaning we're in exile. Nighttime is exile. It's when we don't have clarity. Till when? Till dawn. What's dawn? What happens at dawn? Suddenly there's light. What's that light? It's the light of Mashiach. The coming of the Messiah, when Mashiach comes, will suddenly look back and realize what the struggle was. We'll understand all of these world events all of these tragedies that befell the Jewish people will understand it then because we'll have the light. Right now, even though it seems like things are going great, look at, you know, Jews are prospering and Jews are, are, are amassing tremendous wealth and so successful in so many different areas, but we're still in darkness. The, the reality that we have today of antisemitism on a rise is just a reminder we're not free people. We're still in exile. We have darkness that we're dealing with. We need to bring that light. And like I, I love saying at this time of the year, Hanukkah is the time to shine that light to the world, to be proud of our Judaism, to be proud of who we are as a people, and not to shy away from it. Don't run away from it. Enjoy it. Shine the light with the world. Share it. So who is really happy? I, this is one of the greatest insights. If you look in this week's Torah portion, you look at Yaakov and Esau. 
referring chapter 33, verse 9 and verse 11. And if you look at verse 9, you'll see Yaakov says, I've got it all. Two verses later, what does Esav say? Yeshli Rav, I have a lot. What's the difference between I have it all and I have a lot? When I say I have it all, that means I have nothing that I'm missing, nothing that I'm lacking. When I say I have a lot, I still want more. You're not, you're not satisfied. A person needs to go with the attitude of I have it all. You know who said that? Abraham and Isaac and Jacob. That's why in our, in our uh, grace after we eat bread, we say the special Birkat Amazon. We say, we say three words, Bakol, Mikol, Kol. Bakol was Abraham. Abraham, Vashem Berachas Avram Bakol. Hashem blessed Abraham with all. He had it all. Doesn't mean he had it all. I'm sure he didn't have hotels and motels. I'm sure he didn't have all of the Corvettes and, and, and the fancy, uh, watches. He saw that Hashem gave him everything that he was supposed to have. And his perspective wasn't that I still need more. That's a ace of perspective. I have a lot. I would love some more. No, I have it all. Isaac was the same thing, and we see the same by Jacob. Bakol mikol kol. We ask Hashem, bless us with the same bakol mikol kol, the all, all, all that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had. We don't say, I have a lot, just like Esau. And it's such an important perspective for us to have. You know, that we're, we're living in a, in a generation that is dealing with a tremendous amount of anxiety, dealing with a tremendous amount of, of pain. But I don't understand. You know, the advertisement for the washing machine was like, what are you going to do with all that time? And now people are like, so, oh my goodness, I have so many things in. And we have today, we have technology in our, at our fingertips that is greater than the technology that they had when they shot the, uh, the, the spaceship to the moon. We have more technology at our fingertips. We can talk to someone. We can video call someone across the globe. And yet we're not happier. We're more anxious. You know why? There's one thing that's missing. Gratitude. If we stopped every day and appreciated the good that we have, like Jacob, you know what I have? I have it all. Exactly what God wanted me to have is what I have. And I'm grateful that I have the ability. You know, if we stopped every day to thank Hashem for our eyesight, if we stopped and thanked Hashem for our ability to walk and our ability to talk and our ability to eat and our ability to hear music and our ability to just experience life to, to breathe in and out oxygen. It's the most amazing thing in the world. But instead of appreciating and giving thanks, what are we doing? What's the next thrill? What's the next thrill? What's the next thrill? Vyeshli Rav, I have a lot, but I still want more. I still want more. We have to change that perspective. We have to have a paradigm shift. Change it to the perspective of I'm grateful for it all. I'm thankful for it all. That is what the perspective of a Jew needs to be. And that's what we learned from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, to always be grateful and thank Hashem for that we have it all. Hashem has given us all. So we see that the parting of ways from Esau is unique because by Laban, who was a negative influence as well, we don't see that Yaakov left. 
But with Esav, he leaves. So I think it's also telling because now Yaakov had little children and he didn't want the children to be influenced in a negative way. So he needs to separate from Esav. And I, it's, it's, it's a theme that we've mentioned a lot. We are the guardians. We are the gatekeepers of our influence, of our environment. And we need to protect ourselves. We need to put protective measures to ensure that we're not negatively influenced from others. So then we have the story of Dina. And Dina's a very interesting story. If you look at the verse, chapter 34, verse 1, you see how the Torah relates that Dina left Jacob's tent. When we leave the house of holiness, the house of, of spirituality, we're putting ourselves in danger. She left Jacob's tent. Meaning she was, so she left. What happens? Trouble comes your way. We have to be very careful. We have to create an environment in our homes that is wholesome, that is uh, fulfilling, that is loving, that is caring. And that's what Jacob had in his house. But Dina, for whatever reason, she left Jacob's tent. She left. What happens? She was abducted, she was raped, and taken by Shechem. And our sages teach us the importance of ensuring that our children stay in our homes, keep that warmth in the home. And this is not in any way a, God forbid, a criticism of Jacob. God forbid. Jacob was righteous, holy, our patriarch, and a perfect, perfect, our sages call him perfect, incredible person Jacob was. And he was the, the pinnacle of truth. Okay. What is the argument of the people of Shechem? Their argument is, they say, come, join, join us, be like us, or that argument of love is love and just like ignore everything else because everything goes. If you're in love, then it's just fine. And the myth that people try to sell themselves and their conscience about intermarriage and assimilation is that if we're like them, they're going to love us. And that is such a flawed argument. If you look at our history, it is replete with this argument where people are saying, you know what, if we just look like them, they're not going to hate us. If we earn money like them, they're not going to hate us. If we're just educated like them, they're not going to hate us. So here's the, here's the deal. If you look at history, when the Jews were at the top of the financial spectrum, they were hated because, look, they're stealing, they're managing all the banks, they own everything, the, the rich Jews. When the Jews were at the bottom of the financial spectrum, they look at them, leeches, we have to give them handouts. When the Jews were at the highest of, of the intelligentsia, they were hated. And when they were at the lowest of it, they were hated. Wherever we were in whatever state we were in, we were hated. There was never a state where they said, or a time where they said, oh, let's just love them. We have to understand this is a law that is in, instilled into creation. Esav sone es Yaakov. Esav hates Yaakov. There's nothing we can do about it. We shouldn't try to reconcile because it's not going to happen. Ever. That doesn't mean that we're nasty to, to our, our neighbors. God forbid. Just the opposite. We need to be nice to them. And we need to give 
even the halacha says, to give charity to their causes so that they don't have extra hatred to us. Mishum eva. There shouldn't be extra hatred. Soften it. Give it to their causes. Yeah, you can give to their YMCA. I mean, you don't, we don't give to their churches. We don't give to idolatry, but we can give to their, their, uh, their causes, uh, so that we defend and protect ourselves from extra hatred. It's very important for us to realize that our goal as Jews is not to be assimilated. Our job is to be unique. Our job is to stand out. That's our job. That's what they look to us for. When we try to blend in, they're like, no, you're not doing your job. You're supposed to be. It's like, imagine, you know, there's a big talk this week. Aaron Judge. Anybody familiar with Aaron Judge? The baseball player just signed an enormous contract with the New York Yankees for eight years. Let's say he says, you know, I, I'm just going to be like a regular ordinary player. You mean be an Hello? You're not supposed to be a regular ordinary player. You're supposed to be unique. You're supposed to be special. You're supposed to be different. No, I just want to fit in. I want to be normal like everybody else. That's not your job. The Jews, that's not our job. It's not our job to just blend in. It's our job to go out and be the special, unique, shining example of what it means to be a Jew, to be a godly person. And the nations of the world look up to us when we're like that. They say, ah, this is the example. They are a light unto the nations now. Assimilating, we're trying to hide it, is not a successful path. So now Yaakov is rebuking his children. We see at the end of this book of Genesis, Yaakov gives all the blessings, and to Shimon and Levi, he beats them. He reprimands them and gives them terrible, terrible constructive criticism. But what does he say? In his reprimand of them killing out the entire city of Shechem, he doesn't say, why did you kill them? He says, why did you use trickery? Yaakov, who was a man of truth, couldn't handle that his children used a scheme, a trickery, that's not called for in the house of Yaakov. You want to kill him? Kill him. You want to wage war? Wage war. Don't use trickery. That's not the way we act. It's very interesting, that reprimand from Yaakov to his children, that we don't use trickery. So Yaakov fulfills his promise of tithing and brings offerings in Bethel. He removes the idolatry. He changes his clothes. Sometimes we need to be we need to freshen ourselves completely, remove ourselves. We see this by Abraham. When Abraham had those three angels who came to eat at his house, what did Abraham do? He says, stay here under the tree. I'm going to bring you water to wash your feet. Why? Because they had idolatry. They were bowing down to idols. He didn't want idolatry in his midst. Yaakov, who was around with Asaph, he goes, he leaves Asaph. I got to change my clothes. I have to remove the physical environment that's on me. And just clean myself up. It's it's almost like if you walk into a house that that it was just on fire and you smell the smoke, it gets onto your clothes. What do you got to do when you get home? Change your clothes because you smell like, you know, the negative the negative smell of that 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 charred burnt house. 
The contrary is true as well. So you walk into a perfume shop, you smell like you have that, that, that aroma as well, which is in, in the positive way. Okay. Rachel's tomb. Rachel's tomb is the only place on planet Earth that was created for prayer. Rachel says, bury me, derech beis lechem. Bury me on the way to beis lechem. Why? Because when the Jewish people are going to go to exile, they're going to pass from Jerusalem. They're going to go right past my gravesite. And I want this to be a place where they can pray to the Almighty. Rachel's tomb is the most powerful place for prayer. It was created just for prayer. The Western Wall is very holy, and we pray at holy places. We pray, pray at, we, we pray at the grave sites of righteous people. But this is a place that's not only of a righteous person, our matriarch Rachel. This is a place that is designated for prayer. It was created for prayer, and we have to utilize that. And the last is the reward for kibud avaim is that the reason Esav's descendants are listed was a reward for him honoring his father so beautifully. The one mitzvah that he fulfilled to perfection, Esav, even though he was wicked in every other area of life, the one area that he perfected was Kibbut Ava'im, honoring his father and mother. And that was a a reward and an appeasement for the selling of the firstborn that the Torah lists his descendants in the in the end of the parsha here. That it's listed, he's not a persona non grata, but he's actually listed here as part of our holy Torah. So my dear friends, that concludes the weekly parsha review for Parsha's Vayishlach and have a magnificent Shabbos and I look forward to continuing next week.